Lord, you are God with us. And, and Lord Jesus, we know that you are the one who can uh, forgive our sins. You are the one who can uphold our lives. You are the one, Lord, who can fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. And so, as your people, we come before you to lay ourselves before you in worship. To tell you again that we love you. Lord, to declare your authority over our lives and over this world. Lord Jesus, we come to hear your word this morning because uh, we are your people and we long to be shaped by your word. Lord, we've been hearing different words all week, different sermons all week from the television and from the conversations in the office, from the conversations at school. And Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. We want your word to transform us and to shape us today. And so, Lord Jesus, we come this morning to lift you up, to proclaim that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to to seek you with all of our hearts. God, I pray that you would be at work uh, among us today, that you would be ministering to us and touching us. God, I pray that you would give us hearts of compassion for one another. Lord, would you continue to shape this church into a very loving community? God, would you help us to care about each other, to cross socioeconomic, racial and whatever other lines would tend to divide us naturally, Lord, help us to come across those lines in Christ and to embrace each other as brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray for uh, those who are hurting today in our church. I pray for those who are lonely, for those who are struggling with physical illness. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are uh, going through a, a crisis in their families or in their marriages. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would walk up and down the aisles of this church and put your hands upon your sheep, that you would anoint their heads with oil, that you would fill up their cups till they are overflowing. Lord, that you would heal those who are broken and in need. God, I pray that you would convict us of our sin. Lord, we confess that we are not a people who have walked in your ways this week. Lord, forgive us our sins this week. We pray that you would... Uh, convict us of those sins. Maybe even today, Lord, there are things that we need to repent of before You. And I pray, God, You'd put Your finger on those by Your Holy Spirit and make us a pure and holy church. Lord, we thank You for uh, Your work in our church and Your work in our midst. We thank You, Lord, that You have been so faithful to this church down through the years. Lord, we pray that You'd be faithful today to our women who are away at the women's retreat down in Rhode Island. We pray, God, that that You would bless them, that You would renew and refresh their spirits, that they would come back full of the Holy Spirit with fresh vision for, uh, for Your work and for reaching out. Lord, we want to pray for our quarterly business meeting which is coming up uh, this Tuesday, that Your Holy Spirit would just guard that meeting, that, Lord, You would be leading our church in that meeting and that You would be showing us the kind of church You want us to be. Lord, just uh, help us to have a sense of unity and direction at that meeting. And Lord, we just pray that now as we open up the Bible, as we look into Your Word, that again You would speak to our hearts. Lord, open our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, so that we can hear what You have to say to us today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, any kids here? Uh, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. Any kids who'd like to head off to children's church? And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're studying verses 45 to 48 today. If you look at page 1041, page 1041 in your pew Bible, that's where that is. If you'd like to look at that there in the pew Bible, page 1041, Luke chapter 19. 
Today we're just studying four verses, but they're really loaded with good stuff. Luke chapter 19. Let me just read the text. It says, Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Have you ever seen these uh, humorous posters? I've seen them a couple times. They're a, a map of the United States, but it's a really distorted map. It doesn't look like how the United States really looks. And, and the poster's called A Bostonian's View of the Country. Oh, it's hilarious. You know, it, In the center of the map, instead of Iowa or whatever is in the center of the United States, is Boston, right? And, and all the big landmarks of Boston are kind of like drawn in 3D and they're rising up like there's Fenway Park and there's the Prudential Building. And then, you know, Cape Cod is really big and the North Shore of Boston is really big. And, you know, then you get the other places outside of Boston like New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. And, and they're still pretty big, but they're not as big as Boston itself. And then, you know, way down sort of south of there, there's a little city and it says New York City. But, you know, it's just kind of a little speck down there. And then you see Boston out to about 128, and then Massachusetts kind of tapers off because, you know, that's sort of you know, western Massachusetts. I mean, it's just out there somewhere. And then after you get out of Massachusetts, the whole country just tapers down into nothing. It's nondescript. There's nothing on the map except for one little dot on the far edge, just a little tiny dot that says California, right? Because we know it's sort of out there somewhere. And whenever I say that map, it cracks me up. And uh, being one of those people who grew up out there, and it's sort of come here. It's really true. I'm just fascinated by the, the way people from this area stay in this area and they have their roots here. You know, I come from the West. It's very transient. People come and go. But, you know, around here, like people who grew up in Boston really cannot understand why anyone would really want to live anywhere else. Um, in fact, you can even draw another map, a Hingamite's view of the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> I met one of these guys. He, uh, I, I know this guy. He's in town. He's a townie. He grew up in Hingham his whole life. Uh, he works in Hingham. He lives in Hingham. And I, and I was chatting with him one day, and, and I was telling him you know, that I'd gone to school up on the North Shore, Boston. And he's like, oh, yeah, the North Shore. And, and so I asked him, I said, well, do you get up there very much? And uh, it, it, I mean, he, totally straight face. He was dead serious. He said, you know, I actually don't get past Queen Anne's Corner very much. So <laughs> if you were to... Go back to the first century A.D. and draw a map of the Roman Empire and you were to entitle this map a Jewish view of the world. I think the map might look something like this. Imagine the Roman Empire and, and so sort of working from the outside in. And the Roman Empire would just be kind of this blah, nondescript gray area. It would be the land of the Gentiles, you know, the dark unclean Gentiles out there. And maybe there might be a few landmarks, like way out there, like we have California. You know, we know it's out there somewhere. You know, Rome would be there somewhere, but eh, Rome is not really where Jews want to go because that's the seat of the Gentile power. As you moved in closer to Israel, you might have uh, Antioch and Alexandria and Egypt because there were some major Jewish settlements there. 
But of course, in the center of the map, you would have the land of Israel. You would have the northern area of Galilee and the southern area of Judah. And probably if this was going to be a distorted map to represent emphasis, the, the land of Judah in the south would be a little bit bigger than it is actually geographically in real life. And of course, in the center of the land of Judah would be a city, Jerusalem, which was the city of David. It was the city that the people loved. It was their capital city. And there in the capital city of Jerusalem, rising out of it, like we would draw Fenway Park rising out of Boston or something like that, rising out of Jerusalem would be the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish faith and identity. And of course, the reason it was was because they believed that God's presence dwelt in the temple in a way that it didn't dwell anywhere else. Of course, they believed God was everywhere. But, but they believed the temple was like the center of God's revelation on earth. That in a sense, the temple was God's throne. In fact, in the Old Testament, they had a throne for God there. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that? That big box. They put the Ten Commandments in it. And that was literally God's throne. Now, of course, in the time of Jesus, the Ark had already been lost. Fortunately, we know the Ark has been found. It was found in the early 1930s by uh, the archaeologist, uh, Dr. Indiana Jones. He found it. So that's good. But, you know, we don't, he didn't have the Ark in Jesus' day. But they still believed that the temple was where God reigned, that his presence was there, that he reigned over Jerusalem and he reigned over Israel. And from his throne in the temple, he reigned over the whole world. And so as far as the Jews were concerned, the center of the world was the temple. And, and everything went out from there. And so the Jews, they reverenced the temple. That's why whenever you read about the temple, people always go up to the temple. You don't go down to the temple, you go up to the temple. And it's not because the temple was the highest point in Israel. It's just because it was the highest point spiritually. So they always talked about going up. Um, the, the rabbis had a saying that there were three things that held up the world. Torah, deeds of loving kindness, and the temple. Uh, the temple was guarded. It had its own guards. They weren't Roman guards. They were Jewish guards. They had their own police force in the temple. And if you were to enter into the temple, you would have come into the court of the Gentiles in, in Jesus' day. This huge area, archaeologists tell us, it was about the size of like 35 football fields. Enormous temple area where a lot of the work was done. And then inside the court of the Gentiles was a smaller court in, where the temple was, and it was called the court of women. And inside that was the court of men, and inside that was the temple, and inside that was the holy place, and inside that was the holy of holy place where God dwelt. So you had all these concentric rings. And if you were a Gentile and you came up to the gate of the court of women, there was a sign. In fact, archaeologists have found these inscriptions. There was a sign over the gate that said, if you cross through this gate and you're a Gentile, you do so on the pain of death. I mean, the guards would simply kill you right there without a trial. That's how serious they were about protecting the temple. It was the epicenter of their identity and of their faith and of their religion. It was you know, who they were. It was like the, the beating heart of Judaism was summed up in that temple there. The historian Josephus, who lived around the same time as Jesus, uh, describes the temple in those days. And he said it was covered with gold plates. And he said when the sun shone in the morning and shined on the temple, it was so brilliant and so bright that it was blinding. What a beautiful uh, sort of picture of how the temple shined in the hearts of the Jews in those days. And so given that devotion to the temple, given the centrality of the temple to the Jewish view of reality, can you understand a little better now 
why when Jesus does what he does in our story today, that the response of the leadership is, we must kill him. Not we got to get rid of him or he needs to stop or knock it off. No, no, we're going to kill him. The Greek word is destroy him. We have to obliterate Jesus because of what he's doing. So let's go back and just look at the text again. Think of the temple in those terms. Verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So here's Jesus. He's going into the temple, and this is what I believe is going on. Here's why I think what he's doing is so outrageous. He's essentially declaring authority over the temple. That's what Jesus is really doing. He's going into the temple and he's asserting spiritual authority over the center of the Jewish faith. By doing what he does, he's making himself essentially the spiritual leader of Israel. He's appointing himself. He's saying, I am your spiritual leader. He's just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey like a king. You remember that? Before the missions conference, we studied that. And now he goes straight into the temple and he takes over authority of the temple. And so he's displacing the authority of the religious leaders who are there. And notice how he takes authority of the temple. He does it in two ways. First of all, he cleanses the temple. Look at verse 45. He takes authority by cleansing. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Now, what is that talking about? Those who are selling, what does that mean? Well, again, if you went into the court of the Gentiles in those days, what you would have seen was a market. Lots of animals for sale. And they were sacrificial animals that you could buy and then sacrifice. Because remember... Uh, Jesus is going into Jerusalem at this time. What time is it in the Jewish calendar? This is Passover. Well, we call it Holy Week, but it was Passover then. This is one of the pilgrim holidays. And so as, when you think of this story, you have to imagine literally hundreds of thousands of Jews coming from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem. So the place is a mob scene. This is the busiest Jerusalem gets all year. And people are coming to celebrate Passover and they have to sacrifice the Passover lamb. But if you're coming from Rome and you've made this pilgrimage, you're probably not going to you know, haul a lamb with you the whole way. Because even if it's the right kind of lamb that's ritually pure and all that, you know, what happens if you trip and your lamb you know, breaks its leg or something and you can't use your lamb? So rather than hauling their lambs and their sacrifices with them, what the practice was in those days is you would come to the temple and you buy a lamb at the temple. Um, or you'd buy pigeons if you were poor and you'd sacrifice pigeons. Uh, there was a temple tax that had to be paid, a, a, a temple half shekel. But you couldn't use Greek and Roman money to pay the temple tax because Greek and Roman money had the picture of the emperor on it or they had a picture of a god on it and you cannot make a graven image and therefore you can't take a graven image and pay the temple tax. So there were money changers there who would take your Greek and Roman money and give you temple money, of course, at a profit. <coughs> so there was an exchange rate. So the, the problem was this whole thing had turned into a big money-making scam. That was the problem. It, it, what seemed like a nice service had turned into a way of just lining the pockets of this economy that had developed inside the temple. Now, of course, down through the ages, people have always used religion and twisted it around to make money, you know, whether it's them then or whether you know, during the Middle Ages, the selling of indulgences in the church. Remember the old saying, Whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's what they used to say back then, to try to give people, make people give money to the church. 
Or even today, where you get kind of wacky Protestant televangelists who are selling all kinds of quack remedies and things on their TV shows. And so people have always misused religion to line their own pockets. And, and this is what was happening back then. So that's why Jesus drives out the sellers. In other words, he comes into the temple and instead of seeing, as he says in verse 46, a house of prayer, instead of seeing a place where people are drawing close to worship their God, he sees a flea market. He walks in and it's like a, a roadside marketplace. It's like a shopping mall. There's animals everywhere and people are making money. And you know, he's like, this is so wrong. Now, what's important is what he does with that. Because I'm sure other people had seen that that was wrong. I bet there were other people who walked in the temple and were like, ay, 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 you know, they're robbing us blind here. The difference is Jesus did something about it. He says, fine, it's not how it's going to be. Uh, we, we learn in the Gospel of John that he made a, a whip out of cords, and he just started going through and wrecking the marketplace. He's kicking over tables, he's letting the animals loose, and the sheep are running everywhere, and he's driving the sheep out, and the place is just bedlam. It's, it's pandemonium. He just totally upsets this economic machine that's in the temple. And so the question is, who do you think you are, Jesus? How could you do this? Well, he's Lord of the temple. That's who he is. By doing this, he is declaring that he has the authority to determine how the temple worship is going to take place. He's Lord of the temple. And so he establishes his lordship and his authority there. But not only does he do it by cleaning out the temple, which was dramatic. Look what, he, look what else he does. The second thing he does to establish his authority. Verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple. So we have Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Then we have Maundy Thursday of Holy Week where Jesus that evening has the Last Supper. Do you know that story? And then Good Friday was when he was crucified and Easter Sunday is when he rose. But what takes place between Palm Sunday when Jesus arrives and Maundy Thursday when he has his Last Supper? Well, a preaching tour. <laughs> he preaches every day. You know, I'm really tired after preaching two sermons and maybe a Sunday school class Sunday morning. I'm beat. I can't imagine preaching every day for like three or four days. That's what he did. He just sat in the temple and he taught and he argued and he instructed and he just kept teaching and preaching and the crowds would come and he kept teaching them and they wanted to catch him but they couldn't because Jesus was surrounded by this congregation all the time. In fact, that's what chapters 20 and 21 of Luke are. The next several months we're going to be getting into chapters 20 and 21 and it's essentially his teachings on, in the temple during Holy Week. And so he taught and he taught. Now why is that important? Because... It was the job of the priests and the teachers of the law to teach in the temple. Again, he's taking their job. So if you were like a Jewish person and you had some dilemma in your life and you're like, what's God's will in this situation? What should I do? You would go to the temple and you would find a teacher of the law and you'd ask him the question and then they'd debate and they'd say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but of course Rabbi so-and-so says that. And you'd get into this sort of big discussion of the law of Moses and the teaching of the rabbis. So the temple was not just a place to offer animals and sacrifices. It was also the place to go and be taught the law of God. And so here's Jesus. Not only does he clean up the temple, he now says, I'm going to tell you what God's law says. I will be the interpreter of Torah for the people. You see that? This is outrageous. So 
you know, he's no longer this rabbi out in the desert and teaching some weird things. That was a problem before for the Jewish leadership, but you know, at least he was out up in Galilee, up in the north, you know, where all the, the crazy people were up in the north. But now he's come south into Jerusalem. And he's ridden into Jerusalem like a king. And he cleanses the temple like a priest. And he teaches God's law like a prophet. He establishes himself as the spiritual leader of Israel in every leadership category that Israel had ever known. He is the Lord of the temple. He is Lord. That's basically what he's saying. Why does he do this? Why does Jesus come in and upset the apple cart? Uh, literally, in this case, because He is Lord. He's Lord of the temple. He's Lord of Israel. He's Lord of uh, Jerusalem. He's Lord of the people. He's Lord of the Torah. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord of the worship of God. He's the one who tells us how God should be worshipped. He's the one who directs uh, God's people. He's the spiritual leader. He's the Messiah Jesus is Lord of the temple. And Jesus is still Lord of the temple. He's risen from the dead. He's still Lord. And He reigns over His temple today. He's still the one who is in authority over how we are to approach God. In fact, He's the one through whom we have to go if we want to get to God. He said, I'm the true and living way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And so that raises a question, of course. What is God's temple today? Does God have a temple today? Is there a temple? Where is it? Now, what's the temple? Because the, temp- the building that Jesus was in in our story was destroyed in 70 A.D. About 30 years after, or so after our story took place, uh, the Roman general Titus came and he besieged Jerusalem for many months, and Jerusalem finally fell. And in their rage, the Roman soldiers leveled the city. They, they went around and intentionally made sure that there wasn't one stone in Jerusalem standing on another. And the temple was completely obliterated. You wouldn't even know there had been a temple there. It was so wiped out. So the question is, where is the temple today? And as we look at the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, as we look at the teaching of the apostles, it is abundantly clear that God's temple today is the church. The church is the temple of God. And I'm sure you understand this, but when I say church, I don't mean, you know, this building. I mean, you understand that. This, this building is not the church. We call it the church, of course. I mean, I, I say to my wife, honey, I've got to go over to church. I forgot something. And you say, oh, we've got to get to church. It's an hour later today. Oh, how are we going to get to church on time? So we call this building church. But we all understand this isn't the church. Uh, this is a building in which the church meets. Uh, you know, if a satellite in the middle of the night tonight, a communication satellite, were to go haywire and come careening through the atmosphere and smash into this building and wipe it out and make headline news all over the world, South Shore Baptist Church would still exist. We, we would just need a new place you know, to meet, but we would still exist as a congregation. We'd just have to rent some space somewhere. I don't know where. Come over to my house or something, and we'd have church. But church is us. We are the church. We are the assembly of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That's why in John chapter 4, Jesus told that lady, uh, that Samaritan woman, he said, look, you Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and we Jews worship on, in Jerusalem at the temple, but a time is coming when you will neither worship on the temple or in Jerusalem, but you'll worship in spirit and in truth. 
In other words, it's wherever the Holy Spirit is that the, the temple is. Uh, or think about Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says, consequently, and remember he's talking to Gentiles here, he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, and here comes the temple imagery, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And then Paul says, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or, or think about 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me just read that one to you. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God does have a temple today. It's us. Isn't that amazing? I just, you know, that concept there is just so amazing to think that God today dwells particularly in His people. That that's where the Holy Spirit is. So when you become a Christian, when you come to that place in your life where you realize that you are a sinner and you... Say to God, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved from my sins and forgiven. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you give your life over to Jesus. What happens is, as part of becoming a Christian, is that not only does Jesus forgive your sins, but the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And I can't really describe how that is. It's just weird. <laughs> That's been a weird thing me, ever since I've been a Christian, is having the Holy Spirit in me. It's a weird, I can't... I can't explain it to you. I can't tell you how it works. It's mysterious. It's supernatural. There's not a natural explanation for it. But something happened to me when I came to Christ. And as I've grown in my faith and as I've studied the Bible, I realize I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And so the Holy Spirit guides me. The Holy Spirit convicts me of sin a lot. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit and my wife help you know, convict me of sin. The Holy Spirit... Uh, guides my thoughts. The Holy Spirit gives me ideas for sermons. The Holy Spirit um, works in my life to make me holy. The Holy Spirit gives me boldness to proclaim the Gospel. The Holy Spirit is living in me. and it, It's not because I'm anything special. I'm a dirty sinner. But the blood of Jesus washed me and miracle of miracles, I've become a living stone in the temple which I just... I can't imagine. It's grace. I didn't deserve it. It's not like I'm some better kind of person who deserves to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus chose me and He forgave me and He died so that I could be made holy and so that God's presence could live in me. And not just me, in us. We together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know when you think of when you think of Christianity. I think a lot of times people think of a, a bore, drying, ritualistic, rules-heavy kind of existence. But man, it is a living relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not a Christian. I don't know, sorry if I'm being blunt, but that's just what the Bible says. Paul says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Because the mark of being a true Christian is the Holy Spirit lives in you. And if you're thinking, well, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit, then you need to find out. You need to get the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus and being forgiven in Him. And so we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What a blessing it is to be a Christian. And, and we together as a local church, when we get together, are a, a temple here where God's Spirit lives. It's awesome. But with that comes 
responsibility and accountability, doesn't it? Because He is still Lord of His temple. He is still sovereign over His temple. And so He comes to cleanse His temple. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking, what would it be like if the Lord of the temple showed up in His temple today? I wonder what Jesus would do if He were to show up physically. Would He uh, kick some things over? What would He teach us? What would need to go and what would need to be put in place? What would the Lord of the temple do if He came into His temple today? And you know, I can't think of the whole world. I'm just, I just don't know enough of the world. But I'm, I'm familiar with the American church to a degree. Well, let's, let's just sort of narrow it down. What would Jesus do if He came into the American church today? How would He respond to His temple in America? Uh, I, I'm deeply concerned that that there are a lot of things filling up our churches, just as all those all that marketing was take, uh, taking place in the temple. So, so I'm concerned there's so much worldliness filling up our churches today. Secular things that don't belong there. Um, when you walk into the average American church today, do you have a sense of the lordship of Jesus in that church? Is that the most common thing we experience in American churches? Is you walk in and you say, Jesus is Lord here. I can tell in the worship. I can tell in the people. I can tell in the way they conduct themselves that Jesus is Lord. Or does something else seem to be Lord? Uh, some of you know, many of you know, I went on a sabbatical a couple summers ago. And part of that sabbatical was I traveled around to different churches. I was just trying to get a sense of where the church was at and where our church should be going as we looked ahead into the future. And uh, I, I mean, to be honest, I was really discouraged by a lot of the things I saw. Um, one church I went to, I may have told you the story before, but I went in. Man, this church was high tech. They had huge screens on either wall. I mean, the screens were huge. There are two of them. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I could watch Lord of the Rings on that and hook a PlayStation up to that, I mean, this would be, and have like, you know, a pizza in front of me, I would just be in heaven. This would be great. Uh, and I'm like looking at these huge screens, and it was high tech. I mean, they had videos playing in the service, and then during the worship and everything, there'd be some guy going around with a camera, you know, like this, all over the stuff. So I would be preaching here, there'd be some guy like, you know, doing this, so that you know, everything was up on the screens. Even though I could see it just fine, it was still up on the screen. So, you know, I'm sort of watching everything at once. And, and then, and then at the, uh, during the sermon, the pastor had a laptop. And for one of the illustrations, he wanted to show us something on his computer. So he's typing it in, and you can see it up on the screen. And I was like, wow. But the thing is, you kind of, I went away from the service being in awe of the technology. And, and of course, you know, we use a PowerPoint thing here. So I'm not saying that all technology is evil. But, but you know, like in the temple, when is it just selling some sheep as a convenience? And when does it become the dominant atmosphere of the temple? When did do, when do technology or other things become the dominant atmosphere and power of a church? Now, this was the kicker. This is the one that got me. Was that as I was in this church being wowed by, by the power of the technology in the church, I was also reading in the bulletin that there was a special room upstairs. I went and found the room afterwards. It was upstairs on the second floor down a hallway. And it was a room where if you wanted to, you could go and take communion. You could go and, and share in the Eucharist upstairs in some room back there. And I was like, huh. Because, you know, I don't remember Jesus ever commanding us to use PowerPoint, although you, you can. But I think he commanded us to take communion together as a church. Where is the lordship of Jesus over how the church functions? I was like, well, what is this? Is, is communion just sort of an optional thing for people who are sort of into that and that's their personal spirituality? You know, 
In fact, the, the reformers, if you go back to the reformers, I mean across the board, you look at the Protestant reformers, and, and they were asked the question, what is a true church? I mean, across the board, they all had the same answer. It is a church where the Word of God is properly taught and the sacraments are properly administered. So you might ask the reformers, they might even say, that's not even a true church. You know, and I'm not going to cast judgment on the church, but I'm just sort of trying to look at things historically. Uh, and so we need to be looking at the, church, at the scriptures. That's by the, the reason, by the way, uh, in this final uh, Disciple Training Institute session, which starts uh, March, March 22nd, uh, Seth and I are each teaching a class. He's teaching a class on the local church, and I'm teaching a class on a particular part of it, uh, elders in the local church. And, and the reason we're doing it is because we just have this passion that, that as we gather as a church, we look to the Bible first and foremost to see what the church should be like. I think the Bible has a lot more to say about church than we give it credit for in American evangelicalism. But, you know, it's easy to pick on some big, ugly, nasty, megachurch monster out somewhere, you know, where there's a dot somewhere in the country way far away from us, wherever it may be. And I saw a lot of churches like that. What about our own church? What if the Lord of the Temple came to South Shore Baptist Church? That's what I was wrestling with all week. I was trying to imagine Jesus coming in here and thinking, what in our church would he kick over? And what in our church would he teach us? What would he say, you're not doing this, let me teach you to do it. Stop doing this, do this. How would he respond to our church? I don't know. What's the spiritual condition of our congregation. As I was thinking of that, I was sort of thinking about uh, a couple passages in 1 Corinthians. In fact, we'll just, we'll just close this, this message here by looking at these passages very quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's on page 1129 if you're using a pew Bible. And here Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's addressing some of the areas in the church that needed to be cleaned up. Speaking as the Lord's ambassador, he was, in a sense, coming into the temple, pointing some things out that needed to be tightened up in the church. Uh, one of the big problems they had in Corinth, and that a lot of churches have, is divisions within the church. And so that was the problem in Corinth. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's addressing the problems of different factions and groups in the church. Look at chapter 3. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. In what way was the church worldly? For, since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So are there divisions? You know, back in his day, there was one group that followed Paul, another group that liked Apollo, so they had different pastors in a sense, and you know, one group like this one and one group like that one. And they had different groups in the church that didn't talk to each other. There were socioeconomic divisions within the church as we read other places in Corinth, Corinthians. And so the Apostle Paul goes right at it in his direct style. He addresses why it's so ridiculous that there should be different factions in the church fighting against each other. And so the rest of chapter 3 is a rebuke of those divisions. And he gives arguments why there shouldn't be divisions. And then he comes to, to verse 16. Check it out. Turn over there. Here's another argument why there shouldn't be divisions in the church. Why there shouldn't be quarreling and fighting and, and disruption in relationships. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are 
God's temple. And that God's Spirit lives in you, plural, you plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. And so I thought, are there divisions in our church that need to be healed? I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just throwing it out there. Are, are there different factions in our church? Are, are the poor Christians in our church muttering against the richer Christians in our church? And do the richer Christians in our church sort of form a little group that doesn't really interact with the poorer Christians in our church? Do the single Christians in our church walk around with a big chip on their shoulder against all the married Christians? And do the married Christians interact and love the single Christians? Do the younger Christians get together and complain about how all the old Christians at South Shore Baptist won't change? And, and do the older Christians get together you know, over tea or whatever they do and complain how the newer Christians or all the young people are ruining the church and changing it from what it used to be? You know, do, we, do we talk this way among ourselves? Do we have these little groups? And then, this is the real question. Is there anyone in this church that I need to be at peace with and I'm not at peace with? You know, when you're like walking down the hallway and during church and after church or whatever and you see somebody coming down the hall and you're like, oh no. And then there's a bulletin board there so you quick and look at the bulletin board and pretend like you're really interested in the yard sale thing that's up there. Like, oh yeah, yard sale. Mm, I love yard sales. Are they gone? You know, and then they leave and then you, you know, keep walking because you don't want to interact. Is there anyone with whom I need to be at peace We need to build up the spiritual temple. Even before we build any physical additions to our facility, we need to make sure that that we're concerned about the spiritual temple. Are we at peace in the body of Christ? Is there unity in this? I think there is a lot of love in this church. I think there is a lot of unity. But I was really challenged by this text to think about that, to make sure that we are one body and that we love each other. And just as Jesus crossed all the social lines, that we cross all the social lines and that we are are one community together. But not only are we a temple together, of course, each of us individually is a temple through the Holy Spirit. And so if you look at chapter 6, just one more text, look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Here we find the temple imagery again. And this has to do with not our interpersonal relationships, but with our own personal holiness and purity. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. It's pretty blunt. Flee from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, of course, is any sex outside of marriage. It's lust. It's, it, it's any sex outside of God's plan, which is male-female marriage. And so Paul says, run from it. Don't mess with it. Don't toy with it. Don't joke about it. Don't fiddle around. Just, Joseph, Potiphar's wife's coming. Run. Just run. Don't even think, I'm going to try to battle it. Okay, I think I can do it. Just get out of the house. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually against his own body. And why is that a problem? Verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Is my personal life honoring to God 
Am I sexually pure? And, and we can expand it out beyond sexuality. Is my whole personal life pure? Are my thoughts pure? Are, you know, am I a drunk? Do I use drugs? Do I do things to my body? Do I do things with my body? And perhaps even more importantly, what are the attitudes of my heart? Is my heart attitude toward others pleasing to God? When God looks at me, does He see a pure and clean temple? Or is my life clogged with some stuff? You know, if you were to walk into that, that court of my life of the temple, would you just see a bunch of stuff there that would need to just get scooped up in a big shovel and thrown into a trash can? And so, Lord Jesus, come and clean your temple. Purify your temple. Teach your temple how to be the temple. I need, I need Christ to be Lord of the temple. And so do you. We need to cry out for God to cleanse us. You know, we pray for revival. Oh, wouldn't it be great if revival came to New England? It's almost like a flip thing to say. Oh, revival would be great. Like, are you sure you're ready? Am I ready? Do we really, really want the Lord of the temple to show up in power in His temple? Because that's what revival is. It's the Lord showing up in unique power in His temple. Man, there's a cleansing that takes place during revivals. Do I really want that cleansing in my life? I think I do, but I've got to check myself again. Do I really want to be cleansed and be holy? What is the condition of South Shore Baptist Church? And I don't mean, how's our budget doing? Though that's important. And I don't mean, how's our attendance? I'll, you know, that's something to look at. And I don't mean, what's our facility? Although that's important too. But when I say, what's the condition of our church? I mean the spiritual condition. Are we a holy temple for the Lord? Because I'll tell you what, a holy church is a deadly weapon in the hand of Christ. You want to see revival on the South Shore? Do you want to see our church impact the South Shore? Then let's be a holy church. A holy church is a deadly weapon in the hand of Christ to accomplish His kingdom. Well, I need to end this sermon, but I would be remiss if I didn't end with just, as I need to do every sermon, an invitation, a call to anybody here who doesn't know Christ to enter the temple to become part of the temple. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're looking in your life and you're like, you know, I don't really know if I have the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. Well, you need to find out. Have you been forgiven of your sins through the blood of Christ? Do you know that you're forgiven before God through Jesus? Have you really received Christ as your Savior? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know. Make, make sure. Find out. Come to Jesus. I don't care where your life has been. I don't care if your life has been a total moral cesspool. The blood of Jesus can cleanse you and make you a clean living stone. Jesus can come into your life and just clean out all the gunk that's in there and make you a new creation and fill you up with the Holy Spirit. But you have to come to Him. You have to cry out to Him. Confess your sins. Say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm, you know, I'm just a sinner who needs to be saved. I want you to come into my life. And when you just cry out in your own words to God like that, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there anyone here? Anyone here wants to turn their life over to Christ? Just one person. I've been praying for you this week that Jesus would come into your life the way He's come into my life. And it's just an amazing thing. Because Jesus is Lord of the temple. Jesus is Lord of Hingham. Jesus is Lord of Massachusetts. Jesus is Lord of America. Jesus is Lord of Iraq. Jesus is Lord of the trees. He's Lord of the birds. Jesus is is Lord. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I pray that You would come and cleanse Your temple. And Lord, come and cleanse me first as the person who stands up here and tells everyone, including myself, that we need to submit to Your Lordship. I pray, Lord Jesus, that I would be submitted to Your Lordship first and foremost before I preach to others. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You would be Lord of this church. Lord, we lay Sasha Baptist Church before You. We want to see You glorified. And so, God, we ask that if there are things in our church that are displeasing to You, that You would purify us. That You would make us humble, Lord. You would cleanse those things. And Lord, we pray in our personal lives that there are things displeasing to You, Lord, that You would cleanse them. Lord, come and purge the temple again. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You would reach out and draw into that temple new living stones, people who don't know You, God, that You, Jesus, would show Your glory to them, that they would reach out and respond to You, Christ, and that they would be saved. Lord, may Your temple grow. We, we pray for the building project, which is the salvation of souls. We pray the building project would go forward. And Lord, we pray that, that our church would be holy. We want to see a revival come, Lord. We want to see our church as a conduit for blessing to the South Shore. But we know, Lord, that there can't be anything in the conduit It has to be clean. The pipe has to be clear. And so, Lord, purify Your temple. Establish Your authority over us again. We love You, Jesus. And we pray this in Your holy name. Amen. We have a closing song? We do. Let's respond with number 45, Crown Him with Many Crowns. When you found that, would you please stand? Let's join together in lifting this up to the Lord of all.